and pick my nose. <laughs> I'm not sure why I did the two. The two, is that how you pick your nose? <laughs> exactly. Just to make sure. I'm a poly picker. I'm a poly picker. There you go. I just had a flashback of the 90s, like the poly pockets. Oh my gosh. I hadn't thought about those in a, in a long time. That's right. <laughs> awesome. So I guess I'll, we can perhaps just dive in and I'll, I'll do like a teeny, just a little intro hello. later. Um, yeah. Yeah, the, and the intro thing, um, yeah, so just a little teeny intro, and then we can dive into things, and we'll we'll end very promptly on the on the hour, so not to not to worry about that. Yeah, I'm very very respectful of people's time. Do you have anything, any questions, or um, questions or anything about that before we get going? No, I'm ready. Okay, okay. So Jessica Fern, welcome to the Shadow Playground. I'm so excited to explore the world of relationships of polyamory, consensual non-monogamy together. Thank you. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) So with your book, Polysecure, you created a way of thinking about the intersectionality of polyamory and attachment theory that really filled a void, in my opinion. Yeah. So you were able to really tune into an emergent need in the world and offer the structures and the frameworks to think about these things. Mm-hmm. And then you proceeded to make a notebook, a sort of a workbook to help a workbook. people, yeah. a workbook to help people create more secure and intentional relationships. So I wanted to just say thank you. And mm-hmm. thank you for, you know, offering something that was needed that was invisible, because that's a lot mm-hmm. of that takes a lot of energy and work to be able to tune in to that invisible thing and create it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for wording it the way you did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to say that my my sister, when I mentioned to her, I'm speaking with Jessica Fern. She said, what? Jessica <laughs> <laughs> you know, definitely in that sort of in that sort of age range, lots of people are reading your book and talking about it. And it's leading to some really great intentional and healing conversations. Yeah, yeah. It's been such like a gift that I didn't uh, anticipate, you know, how well it would be received. So, hmm. Yeah, I wanted to just start off with a very simple question. You know, this is a, a shadow playground. So it's a place where we're talking about play, about shadow and everything in between and beyond. And I'm wondering for you, what's one form of playfulness that you're enjoying these days in your life, whatever that may look like? Yeah, that's a great. Well, it's an easy answer at this moment um, in a very non, you know, romantic relationship way. My son is eight. And so it's just a different developmental stage. And he is so funny. Like he cracks adult jokes (laughs) (laughs) and he wants to watch stand up with me and his dad. And then he like can like replicate the stand up later. So there's just a version of play that's like newly emerged in my parenting. That is so much. It's so fun. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Yes. And humor, I mean, the fact that your your child is connected to humor, I mean, that's a gift for a lifetime. It is, yeah. His dad, my co-parent, like, could have been a stand-up comedian himself. <laughs> so, so my son's kind of inheriting that, and we're encouraging it. So, it, yeah, it's really fun. You were going to have um, some good dinners exactly. with your son over the years. Exactly, yeah. There's a lot nice. of laughs and smiles. And I'm a relatively new kitty mama of like the past year and a half. So I didn't know. I didn't know like how much play, you know, with cats specifically. It's the first time I've had cats in my life. So Cats love to play. They do. <laughs> yeah, they're so playful. And I realized some of my playfulness is similar. You know. Oh really? Yeah. 
yeah like it's been fun to with my partner be like oh let me be a little more feline and like <laughs> feel into that right and be more playful in that way you know it's funny that there was cat woman the superhero but there's never like right. a dog woman or like dog man it just wasn't <laughs> so such... true like <laughs> labrador lady like they didn't have that <laughs> it was missing it was missing a bit of mystique or something you know uh... right right the dog's more like of a sidekick of a superhero right <laughs> i think there's a movie about that actually like a new kids thing i haven't seen yet where it's like the superhero dogs or something right like in this, yeah. in this paw patrol and things like that yeah like that's true, side, yeah. Side <laughs> kind of vibes yeah. so you specialize in relationships and you obviously work with people to help them improve their relationships yeah so what are the you know the conditions in a relationship that are needed in order to be playful together that's a really great question um i think safety is one of the primary foundations you know, that we feel obviously things like physically safe, um, but really emotionally safe, mm-hmm. you know, can I share myself and my partner doesn't deflect or not pick up on that emotional bid or get defensive, right? Mm-hmm. So feeling like there's emotional safety where, and that feeling of acceptance, like I can be me and it's allowed. And even I think if we're going to get into playfulness, like I can be me and it, and who I am is celebrated and like wanted that's so beautiful the idea that you could be yourself in all of your imperfections right and, and you're like, I'm accepted and thus I'm free to play I'm free to try things out yeah exactly right and from that attachment perspective like the child you know the toddler feels free to explore the room and play when there's that connection that you know safe haven with the caretaker Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, where they feel physically, emotionally safe. They know they'll be soothed if they need to. Right. So then they go off and explore. So if the if the base is there, they can go and yeah. explore. And if it's not, no. I mean, what, <laughs> basically, what I'm hearing. Yeah. Right. It really shuts down. Yeah. Exactly. And um, like I'm a child that was parentified. Right. I was expected to be an adult before developmentally appropriate right Mm. and so I can look back and go oh yeah there were some aspects of play that got lost in that yeah right and like right and so in my adult like part of my own therapeutic process is like oh how do I recreate or like reconnect with playfulness Mm -hmm. having been given an adult role right too early yeah right exactly how do I let some of those child parts that are creative and messy come out you know, and mm. silly, right? And so- <laughs> right? Silliness, right? It sounds almost like a, a Harry Potter spell, like parentify. <laughs> Except where it has a little bit, obviously, disastrous effects in terms right. of allowing someone to be a child. Mm. When you use that language of safe haven and secure base, yeah, you talk about what those mean a little bit, the distinction between both of those? Yeah, yeah. So those are attachment terms. So you know, and they kind of do sound like what they are, right? Like, so safe haven is the caretaker is our safe haven when we're little. They're the one that makes us feel safe, that soothes us, that responds to our needs, you know, Mm -hmm. physical needs and emotional needs. So as adults, they're the people we can turn to and they're there for us. And Mm -hmm. we feel like we can show ourselves, we can relax and let down our guard. And like the person is there with us. Mm-hmm. yeah and it feels safe to share to tell right? right yeah yeah um so it's that feeling of really being attuned to and really being received and comforted uh 
Yeah. And then secure base is sort of, you know, but it does, we need that foundation of safe haven first. But when we have that, that secure base is, oh, then I can go explore. And so that aspect, whether it's of parenting or partnering, that encourages, right, us to go, go explore the world, go play, go experiment, go be big, go take Mm. risks, right? And people, when they have that sense of safe haven, um, they are more likely to take risks in their life Mm. and that pay off, right? Like, oh, I'm going to try this new job that I didn't (laughs) think I could do, or I'm going to you know, initiate a new project that I've been afraid to. And yeah. It, yeah. It's, I'm hearing it's that sense that you can fall on your face and it's okay because you can return. You can return I, to the haven, return to the base. Like I'll be cared yeah, for. It's okay it's, to take a risk. I'm going to be okay. Yeah, that's well said. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I was like that image of falling in the face because one's face, because it happens sometimes. And, you know, we get up, you're like, okay, I just fell on my face. Okay, let's keep going here. <laughs> you imagine in a relationship where someone has, you know, the the people have um, really been able to build that haven, that sense of base, mm-hmm. and they're just so they have that safety, and they also aren't quite sure how to bring in that playfulness yet. What are some ways that we can foster and sort of give air to the fire of those mm-hmm. playful possibilities in our in our daily lives and our relationships? Great. Um, Yeah. I mean, some of it's super simple, like just what are your shared interests that the things that you both enjoy, you know, and I think also getting out of this rigid box of like, what is play and fun? Right? Like, it's not not necessarily (laughs) like running around like children or going out to the bar and like getting drunk, you know, like those aren't those could be the ways, right? Um, But they're not necessarily the ways like, you know, for me, it's like, it's a form of like fun. So playing with the synonyms, because some people are like, I don't know how to play. Okay, great. Where do you find a certain feeling of aliveness and fun? You know, oh, when we read a book together, I get really excited. And the conversation is very, you know, engaging, and it's fun. Great. That's a form of adult play, you know. Mm. Um. So I think, yeah, breaking the mold of what is play in the first place. You know, it doesn't mean you have to do finger paintings. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, I think for adults, I mean, sex is a huge domain of play, right? It's one of the ways that, that we play and, and feeling like it's safe to, uh, there's these researchers, I'm forgetting their name, but they came up with the phrase sexploration, that when we feel safe, right, from an attachment perspective, we're more likely to be satisfied sexually and have this sex exploration mm. with our partners, right? It's like, oh, that sounds fun. <laughs> well, that sounds beautiful and kind yeah. of, yeah, it sounds beautiful and sexy being like, can we try out something new? Like, this, is, yeah. this might be weird or kinky or whatever, but let's try it out. Right. Taking risks, you know, even if it's a, a new whatever, right? position toy role play energy you know Mm. yeah location that you normally don't have sex (laughs) right yeah I really like you just breaking that mold on play I think it's somewhat somewhat ironic that we we have this notion of play in this really rigid (laughs) two-dimensional version when really there's so many ways of playing and like you say it really looks like different things for different people yeah, yeah. And it's funny because I'm rarely on social media, but um, I was in a group and got texted on Facebook and then just saw this. It's not even it's like a ad or something, but it was this 
couple and it was this reel of them playing. And so I was, this was just this morning as I'm thinking about you and my talk <laughs> and they're in a pool and he's like lifting her up and she's flipping and they're doing like all this acrobatic stuff. And I was like, oh, wow, that's incredible. <laughs> like They're literally playing. Like, you know, <laughs> they're like wrestling with each other. They're like pillow fighting, you know, and it seems so ridiculous. And I was like, this is great, you know? Wow. Yeah. It actually sounds like a practice of really, really with 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 your partner right. or partners, just saying where where do we our sense of play, where does it connect? And maybe yeah. that's wrestling, maybe that's playing at a pool, maybe that's playing cards, maybe that's reading, whatever. Maybe it is. it's video games, right? Yeah. A lot of people, adults, love video games, right? They were like spitting water in each other's face and laughing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Or or my son, um, he'll you know we'll watch like funny videos on YouTube sometimes, and there's this whole thing where people put like um shaving cream in a balloon and they hold like it's up high and then someone walks into the room and they like hit a nerf arrow at it and it like falls in them or something and I'm like oh tricks like that energy of like poking someone of course if they like it if this might not Mm. be right for everyone like but in consent you know the way of like tricking people right Mm. yeah in a way that's fun you know jumping yeah if it's fun right yeah if it it's doesn't so freak out having that sense of spice of surprise of enjoyment I've definitely been on dates or in moments when I'm just thinking and feeling like oh, I just need some spice need some yeah. flame need some something I think that I can see these tools being really helpful just to if there's a safety there to explore them yeah exactly hmm. so I'm curious if you're feeling that do you expect the other person to bring it or do you be like what can I do right now that's sort of <laughs> Spices things up, you know? So I work partially as a facilitator. So I love to bring activities and games to my interactions to the point that some of my people in my life will say, I don't want any more activities or games right now. And I'm <laughs> so I definitely like, it's enough, right? So and for me that's been a, a learning as well, being, you know what? Everyone has different needs as well. I'm not I can't impose the play, I can't impose impose the activities but I can make sure that I'm running for myself. So of mm-hmm. course I can kind of go off my own, but I'll have my own game time. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. On the subject of breaking molds, mm-hmm. I want to say that we live in this world that, you know, often considers monogamy the norm. And you have this word mononormative, which I love. It sounds like yeah. a dystop- the mononormative dystopian <laughs> future. <Right. laughs> but this idea of, you know, you meet your two lifelong partners and you fall in love and get married and spend the rest of your lives together and ta-da! And I'm just curious for, I mean, from your perspective, you know, what are other ideas? What are other narratives, possibilities that are out there? There's lots. I mean, are you meeting just other relationship structures altogether, like non-monogamy? Yeah, for instance. (laughs) Yeah, right. For instance, non-monogamy. Monogamy isn't the only way. Um, you know, non-monogamy is a huge umbrella term at this point that covers so many different styles of relating, but, Mm -hmm. you know, in its essence, it's having multiple partners and everyone knows, right. Mm. And even within that, it's not just always romance or sex. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's the other. Mm. Yeah. So sort of allowing ourselves to be the designer of the types of relationships we want. I like that word designer, like really, I'm going to design it. You have the, the term polyintimate, which I thought was just yeah. genius. This notion of someone who is connecting um, perhaps intimately with someone, but not physically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
I have a partner of 20 years and we would now call each other poly intimates. You know, we're co-parents, um, we're platonic life partners. That would be another good phrase. We were mm -hmm. married for 10 of those years and romantic sexual partners, right? But there's a life, lifelong commitment that we haven't released each other from, mm -hmm. even though it's been fluid through the decades of what aspects of relationship it includes. Mm. Yeah, so... And that sounds like a beautiful relationship and it it's is. grown and evolved in so and many evolved. ways over the years. Yeah. And we're, we're creative partners as well. And so, um, yeah, it's calling each other exes. Someone asked that recently, how do we introduce you? Right. And they were like, well, your exes. And I was like, well, that prioritizes our previous marriage over everything. And at the very least, we're co-parents above being exes, <laughs> yeah. you know, because we're still in that. But like, even that, we're not just co-parents that get along. Like, we live together. We write together, you know, like, right. exactly. you know, like, we have financial planning together, right? Like, so, um, so yeah. like, what are we prioritizing? We're describing it because you, if you're stuck in, keeping, staying stuck in that word X for so long, you know, yeah. your relationship has moved on. Yeah. Other more beautiful pastures. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, the marriage was too small of a box for us and we expanded beyond it, you know, and mm. had to release some of those aspects. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Yeah. But even in monogamy, because you're sort of asking, like, how do we rethink, you know, when you started with the together forever, right? Um, even within monogamy, I'm listening to this book, um, You Can Heal Your Heart. And I'm just in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. um, so I can't completely say how the whole book is <laughs> but he's bringing in this perspective of just sort of like the grief after a breakup or a divorce is sort of proportionate to how we're storying what the relationship was supposed to be mm -hmm. right and often often we have that it was supposed to be forever and it's understandable often we want it to be that way but if we hold narrating it more as okay that was for the amount of time it was supposed to be Right. And mm -hmm. some relationships can be meaningful, but they are only four years or four months. Right. It doesn't mean it was a failure of a relationship. So I think even in monogamy, you know, we can think differently about does it have to be forever together forever? Mm. Like, what is right. it actually instead of what it should it be? Or exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you have this, uh, you talk about this notion of attachment-based partners versus yeah. non-attachment-based partners. And I can imagine that applying to friendship as well. What's yeah. the difference? What's the key difference when you sort of know that you've gone into attachment-based relationship or not? Right. Well, if you're feeling a lot of attachment insecurity, <laughs> that could be one of the indicators, right? Where your attachment system is freaking out, right? Um, or, it's like something right? tells me. Something my tells me, system. right? My attachment system's at play here. Um, but whether it's a romantic attachment relationship or it's a friendship attachment relationship, right? Or adult family members, right? These are the the difference would be. These are the people that we can rely on and that rely on us in a more regular, consistent, emotionally engaged way. So we can have wonderful friendships, wonderful partners, but there's not necessarily that like, I'm here, I got your back, you got mine. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. There's no judgment on that. You know, like I just spoke to my college roommate and we hadn't spoken in three years, it was like not a second had passed. We love each other so deeply and we'll always connect every few years and have these great, like, you know, like 
someone who's with me through my life in some ways, but we're not in the day-to-day regularity of like, that's an attachment person who's going to be there for me when I really need it. Mm. Yeah. I almost, I would venture to say that there is this idea of we can play with the sexuality and play with the emotionality of the connection with different kinds of people, but that there's a sense of playing with the attachment. The attachment actually needs a base. It does. Yeah. 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 Right. Exactly. And often, um, and we can't always control that. That's the thing, you know, like we <laughs> might have a certain intention, like we go into a, a connection or, you know, dating a person thinking we're not going to get attached. And, and then we sometimes do, you know, so that can be hard too when there's a mismatch of expectations or availability. Mm, yeah, that's a, that happens, right? We can't control it. It's like the notion of you can't be like, we're going to be together. We're going to see other people, but not fall in love. And it's like, well, good luck. <laughs> good luck. Good luck and joy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I see that. I see that a lot with newly opening marriages. You know, usually it's like, okay, you can have other people, but like, don't fall in love. And I'm like, do not put that expectation (laughs) on anybody. It's just not possible. And I've yet to see that not backfire. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. Use this great word design. And, you know, we design clothes, we design houses, we design cities. And here you are saying, you know, we can design our relationships. We really can. Yeah. And here you are giving these tools to people to do that. And I'm wondering, how can we give ourselves permission to really design the relationships that can be as customized and colorful as our world is? Yeah, I would just say permission granted, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? That we have the permission. And Thank so you, Jessica we'll, Fern. If you're right, listening to this, it's you've official. received it's official. <laughs> It doesn't mean it's easy. You know, of course, people, um, it can be hard to design what you want because your family of origin or communities that you're embedded with might not agree with your choices, right? Um, But to look at on so many levels, people are designing and redefining not just relationships, right? What is gender? What is sexuality? What is orientation? What is masculinity and femininity? All of these things are getting deconstructed because they need to, right? Because when it's in a rigid binary, it doesn't include the reality of humans, right? <laughs> which doesn't fit into a binary, right? So, so yeah, I think just knowing that um, if you have the desire and the longing to do something different than what you were told is right or normal or natural, it's there's other people doing it too. And there's other people doing it well. Mm. Yeah. I'm having this idea of, you know, weekend design your relationship workshop. Totally. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's like just, I'm just picturing lots of sparkles and glitter. Uh, <laughs> of course, right. You're like thinking of the exercises, right? the games. That's what, what's the, that's my professional sort of the direction I go easily. I'm curious um, if you want to just step into space of creativity here if you could sort of paint the picture of what uh, a potential constellation of a joyful state of polysecurity. So what might that look like? Yeah. Just what are some of the possibilities that people might consider exploring uh, when they're, when they're designed, doing that design process? Yeah. Do you mean like that they could have multiple partners, um, partners that you live with, partners that you don't, Exactly. Everything. Right? Like break our conceptions. Break our yeah. break our binaries. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I can just, it's probably better to speak to even my current situation as an example of something non-traditional and yet some aspects of it are really working, right? Mm-hmm. 
is I have my, you know, poly intimate partner. We co-parent, we live in the same house. Um, we didn't, you know, we did live in the same house, then we didn't. Now we do again. So we find like, yeah, when we live and we have sort of like separate units in the same house and yet there's a lot of shared space, but we can close the door if we need to. <laughs> right? And, and our son is, you know, up and down and in and out and feels that both of his parents are present. Like it's just so ideal. Right. And we can support each other in domestic ways. It's great. Then I have a partner outside of the house and I find that my eroticism is way higher when I don't have to share a lot of the domestic realities with this person. Right. But we're this is an attachment partner though. This is like a very involved, you know, like, we, we don't see each other every day, but we're in contact throughout the day, right? And there's a lot of emotional support, emotional connection, intellectual engagement, and high eroticism, you know? Mm. And and I'm like, oh, this really works, <laughs> right? And we can focus on ourselves and our children and our careers and each other. But, you know, it's it doesn't all have to be in the same house. Wow. Yeah. And, and no one probably ever told you when you were 15, like, so you could have one partner you're living with yeah. and another one with no domestic chores and it's completely erotic. That wasn't, right. you know. <laughs> Not even on the menu. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So you made your own menu. Like you, right. you made your own menu. It's amazing. It yeah, really and is. It- and it was from a lot of trial and error, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's not like, oh, I just decided and wrote it up and then voila, it's been <laughs> like, you know, there's been a lot of relationships that have come and gone and all of that, you know, and one where we're now figuring out another relationship. We've been living together. We've been domestic. We're figuring out, does that actually work? You know, what do we need? And we're in a big transition. So, mm. yeah, but willingness to have those conversations. Even. So you have a, a young son who's eight mm-hmm. and do you, eight, yeah. so, and how do you talk to him about that or how do you explain? Yeah. yeah. In some ways it's been so easy. I was just talking to a colleague about this. We were talking about um, people who come out to their like adult children or their teenage children. And we're both like, I have a lot of professional advice and have supported clients, but I didn't have to do that because he's just been raised with um, we can love more than one person. And, and he's also been raised with a new you can choose if you, when you're older, you want to be with one person, that's beautiful. And if you want to be with more than one person, as long as everyone knows, that's great. (laughs) So, and to him, it's just been very normal. Um, But I am protective. It's not like partners are coming and going and I'm not letting him create attachment bonds with people that are not really invested, you know? Mm, So they know my partners is, oh, this is like a friend that they would know of mine who cares about them, you know, that there can be some shared time, but it's not like they're taking on parental responsibilities. Right. Yeah. And that's, it's it's that thing of, you know, are you in that zone or not? And it's a pretty Mm -hmm. clear distinction. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, And we, we've kept that sort of, you know, he has two parents that are involved and people might help. Right. Absolutely. Um, But I know, of course, many people where they are, you know, co-parenting as a triad, as a quad, you know, even two married couples that met and already had kids and then for a decade raised all of their kids together with four parents. It's beautiful, you know, Um, or donor families Two women that had, you know, each got pregnant by the same donor who lived Mm -hmm. next door and then he got married and all four parents raised the children. Right. Right. You know, so there's so many ways to do it. 
it's I'm just imagining this, you know, this real relational future where with the communication skills, the boundary skills, the attachment, yeah. attachment skills, people are able to really just create these incredible constellations of care and love yeah. that aren't confined into a, a specific structure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm. sort of, you know, the way people talk about it takes a village to raise a child. And it's like, this is, people are getting creative because we realize the nuclear family is not a successful um, structure. <laughs> what? For, right. <laughs> I said it. <laughs> right. For raising a child. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Yeah. I mean, it was my first like emotional postpartum meltdown when I was like holding my little one, you know, it was like two or three months in. And I just realized like, I'm supposed to be an entire village for this child. Like I'm supposed to be responsible for all of his physical needs and emotional needs and entertain him and be his playmate. Like I, it was felt like too much. I could do pieces, but I'm like, I'm not, you know, and then, so yeah. And many people experience this, like, it's you know it's a lot of pressure to be all the things a child needs for one or two people and I think they need much more than one or two people yeah you know that sounds like an epiphany of uh, that sounds like an epiphany moment where you're just really realizing I can't give you everything I need a village I need a community here I need help and at that time I didn't have the multi-generational support and and other you know familial support that was like oh we have to pay for all of it this sucks right right yeah yeah yeah. so yeah I think other times in history and other cultures are able to do it much better where there's multi-generations in the house or available for support you know yeah definitely having that sense of generational support is incredible yeah because there is that different perspectives different needs being met yeah Uh, you had them in your you mentioned these two just two vocabulary pieces and I just saw them just being so powerful so I wanted to to ask you what they mean and also how might we foster them and I'm putting them together because they're both positive and powerful ideas Mm. the one is this idea of expressing delight expressing delight and the second one is this notion of compersion Mm -hmm. so how can we express delight and develop a sense of compersion yeah great so express delight is it is an attachment term which is just that, right? That when we look at our child or our partner, there's just this delight oozing out of us for their alive, the fact of their beingness, right? Yeah. And that it's easy to express delight in who they are. And that could be verbally or non-verbally, right? Mm. People sometimes see it as a synonym for like words of affirmation, that love mm. language. Okay. But it's it's beyond just that, right? Like, you know when someone's looking at you and they adore you, you know, mm. and they're just so happy that you're in the room with them. Right. And they're just so happy that you're around. Like we know that feeling that someone might not even have to say the words, right. We know the feeling when someone likes us. Right. 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 So it, it's that experience. Right. And so it's an important one in attachment and in adult relationships, you know, are we expressing delight in our partners? And vice versa. Do we feel the delight they experience that they have us in our lives? Mm. And I like yeah. what you're saying about how it's it goes beyond just saying it's beyond it's words. Like, I yeah. I really appreciate that. You know, it's not that. It's the person is happy to see you. 
Right. It's like it's, they're happy to see you. Yeah. Like, and I and I I really like the word delight. Delight's pretty big on it the is. emotion. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. I like what you're saying too. The simplicity yet powerfulness of just like we know when someone's happy to see us. Yeah. <laughs> and how that can be so sometimes lost in relationships, right? Or the stress and chaos of like everyday modern living. Right. Like we forget just to turn towards each other, children, you know, loved ones, partners, and just express that delight, you know, to mm. show it through a hug or whatever, or a smile. Yeah. And what if you're not feeling delighted to, yeah. to feel towards someone? And, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a relationship, an attachment yeah. relationship or friend or family, and you're actually feeling frustrated or frustrated right, or right. Like, like, I'm not in the space of expressing delight right now. I'm, yeah. you know, what might someone do if they're kind of in that space? Like, I want to be honest and I actually don't feel delighted at all. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, I think just being on, right. Assuming this is a temporary situational thing, not a, a pattern and a dynamic that's emerged. And you actually are like, I don't like this person. <laughs> yeah. That's a different conversation, right? That's a different conversation. Yeah. Right. But yeah, I'm not in a good mood or I had a hard day and that's it you know, I'm struggling right now. I'm not feeling well. Um, I just had a stressful day and just letting people know where you're at. So right. giving, you know, like letting people into the, the window of you and giving a snapshot of where I'm at and what's happening. Mm. Yeah. That's. And so then we all know what to expect. And usually then when we can speak in that way, the people around us will also support us. What do you need? Right. Oh, you've had a hard day. Can I cook tonight? It just—it's so clear and honest. I'm actually just having a bad day right now. Right now, yeah, it's, it's or really... I'm grumpy. <laughs> right? I mean, it's okay. Or I didn't—I didn't sleep well. You know, like just naming what's going on, right, yeah. and not making it about the other person or the relationship or all of those things. You know, but if it is, it's like, mm. oh, I don't actually feel delight because of you or in you because of the ways we communicate, the ways we relate you know, then we do have to start saying what's going on. Right? You dive, dive a little bit deeper into that dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Mm. How right. about that word, that quote, that notion of compersion? Compersion. Yes. So this is, you know, the delight we take, the happiness we have in our partners being with other partners. Right? Mm. So we feel, and it's, um, it's, a, it's related to a Buddhist term, sympathetic, um, Oh my God, I'm going to botch it. Not sympathetic delight, sympathetic joy, mm. right? Um, which is like one of the expressions of even enlightenment is sympathetic joy. Like I'm happy you're happy, you know, like <laughs> I didn't get a new job. You did, but I'm so, ha- I feel genuine happiness for your success or your happiness or the things going on for you. Right. And in that tradition, it's something we can cultivate. We can try to look at the, you know, um, gifts, benefits, you know, positive experiences other people are having and take joy in that, Mm. connect to the joy in it. Wow. And so it's, you know, specifically used in non-monogamy as well. It's not just, I'm happy for my friend that, you know, a good thing happened to them, but I'm actually excited or happy for my partner that they're having a good experience with somebody else. Hmm. Yeah. Is compersion, is it a muscle we practice? Is it something that naturally arises? It is both. Yeah, okay. it's both. Yeah. And muscle is a great analogy because there are some people that are just born with a certain genetic athletic ability that like, <laughs> you're like, they just do it. 
And then some people you're like, it's not just there, but they flex the muscle and they can do it. Right. Mm. Um, so yeah, some people just seem to be easier at compersion and mm. some people have to work at it and effort at it, but they can get there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think just be careful not to expect it. Like when our partners can have compersion for us, it feels amazing. Mm. But when we are like, you're not feeling compersion and you should, like it's, it's not a good <laughs> relational strategy. Yeah. So what are some of the traps that you see coming up in consensual non-monogamy? It sounds like that's one of them. Being like, you should be happy for me and be com- showing compersion right now. <laughs> you should feel different than you do. I mean, that's basically, you should feel different than you do with what you're saying to your partner. And that's the power over them. You know, it's a mm. lack of an, and often it creates all this, layers of so the person who's not feeling compersion now feels guilted or shamed and now they feel like more shit basically because they're getting it from their partner you know and they feel like they're failing and there's this idea Mm -hmm. one of the shadows in non-monogamy is you're not poly enough you're not being poly enough Mm. what does that mean right what does that mean (laughs) first of all it means that you're not getting to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it is that what you're saying (laughs) so that's another shadow we can come to um but yeah where people sort of leverage you're not being poly enough right Mm. um as if it should come naturally and easy to everybody and Mm. it doesn't you know, there's a lot of deprogramming and reprogramming and paradigm shifting that people have to go through um, mm. who have been acculturated into, you know, from monogamy to non-monogamy. And um, yeah, so this idea that you should be anywhere else than where you are and right. you shouldn't have struggles and, you know, shame on you for struggling with what's happening. Yeah. So it goes back to that sense of acceptance. Like, can we yeah. really be accepted where yeah. we are on our journey with our our fears, our weaknesses, everything? Yeah, exactly. And often the person who's using that is avoiding their own guilt. Because many times they're the one that's initiated this or they're the one that was already doing non-monogamy or they want to have more freedom, so to speak, than they have. And they, mm. they feel bad that their partner is not okay yet, or is struggling with this, right? That is feeling jealousy and maybe not compersion, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, yeah, if they were just in a different place, I wouldn't have to feel my own guilt for myself. right? <laughs> and not that that person is doing anything wrong with being like, that's often the internalized shame that someone's trying to avoid around themselves being polyamorous. Oh, it's so easy, yeah. hey, to push it onto someone else. It's, when it's so actually easy. Our... <laughs> yeah, it's called like the hot potato, right? Like you just <laughs> hot potato it onto someone else. Yeah. And my understanding is that even with a form like relational anarchy, there's there's yeah. there's agreements. It's not when people. Some, I've heard polyamory or using the sense of oh, I'll just go sleep with 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 whoever I want and do whatever I want. My understanding is that it's actually really rooted in this understanding of respect and yeah. agreements. Right. Yeah. When I see. Right. Polyamory is a lot about respect, agreements, consent, consideration, you know, and it's um, it can be a lot to manage because you have more than one person to be considering and checking in with and mm. having, you know, negotiations with. And so that's another shadow of non-monogamy when people are like, 
saying they're non-monogamous, but they're really causing a lot of harm. And they're sort of more in this, I do whatever I want, whenever I want. What's that called? Right. That's called, um, well, we can make (laughs) jokes, right? But I mean, that's, it's sort of an equivalent to like an adolescent phase or like a bachelor, bachelorette mentality or something, you know, um, I don't know what the non-gendered words of bachelor and bachelorette would be, right? But like, it's when someone is prioritizing their personal freedom over the safety and consideration of the people they're in relationship with. Now that's just gold. You just put your finger on it. Yeah. Yeah. And so in polyamory, we have to navigate the balance of my freedoms with my consideration and care and the safety of the people I'm in relationship with. Mm. But some people are, um, so to me, that's a balancing act, you know, that's, she can shift every day, <laughs> but we have to be navigating both of those, right? Whereas people are practicing and they're really just prioritizing themselves and not the people around them or the impact that their actions have um, on the people around them in the name of, well, I told you I was non-monogamous and you must not be polyamorous enough, right? Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. We looked at, well, in this podcast, we've looked a lot at navigating big, deep, dark feelings, uh, Mm. the shadow side of things. And a question I had for you is how, like perhaps share a personal story. I used to never be jealous ever. It was one of those things that people talked about and I didn't, I didn't really, I said, I'm not a jealous person. One day I developed a deep attachment bond and that person began seeing other people. And let me tell you, I learned pretty pretty quickly what jealousy felt like. And it felt like my entire body freaking out. And I, I, you have this word of, you know, a primal attachment panic. And I'm wondering, how is it that we can dance or be with ourselves when we're in these phases or this state where our body is essentially just, I use that word freaking out, but again, a yeah. primal attachment panic. Yeah, exactly. So people for listening, the primal attachment panic is this literal panic that happens in our nervous system that's like left over from infancy that when our attachment figure is out of reach or unavailable, we think I'm going to die. Mm. And it that was truth back then. And it is not actual truth usually in adulthood that we're going to die, but the feeling is absolutely what's getting activated. You know, that, oh no, I can't reach them. Um, they're, you know, they're going to be off their phone for a few hours because they're on a date or they couldn't be there for me if I wanted them. And our body goes into this attachment panic of where's my person, basically. Mm. Yeah. And so it it does. It's like it can feel like a complete meltdown, a complete freaking out, you know, like a panic anxiety attack. Mm. Yeah. So when people are in that place, you know, I, it's you have to do multiple things, right? So polyvagal theory, which talks about the different nervous systems, and specifically this is you know, primal attachment panic is like a sympathetic activation of threat, danger, and really like going through the tools of polyvagal theory and coming up with interventions. So when I'm in this place, what do I need to do to regulate? Mm. And and really mapping that out and having like seven ideas that you can turn to. <laughs> not one. You know, right. Not one. <laughs> it's, it's like you need, you know, uh, what, what are those tools? 
right? <laughs> you know, you need a multi-pronged approach. Um, but it was interesting is a lot of them are very simple. It's like breathe different kind of breathing techniques, moving your body in certain ways, making certain noises, even like putting an ice cube in your mouth, like drinking cold water, <laughs> you know, but you need to like have it written down and kind of go to your piece of paper and go, I have to just go down the list and, you know, try these things. Mm-hmm. Right. Also what in the relationship could be, so that's an individual level, right. Then looking at what from my own past is getting triggered, right. Mm-hmm. Times where I was abandoned, um, mistreated, violated, you know, all the things, right. That my nervous system is, you know, reactivating, right. And having to do that kind of healing work. Mm. right and then what in the relationship could be happening right it's not just usually someone's own stuff a hundred percent you know it's usually both my own stuff my own history my unique nervous system and oh where do I need more support and connection before my partner leaves Mm. you know what do I need what do we need as a ritual when we come back to each other so I feel reconnected Mm. yeah what kind of supports do I need when a person's on a date so that I don't feel as alone right yeah the there's the what you're saying it's not just I'm in crisis mode with no preparation there's a sense of I've prepared some strategies I'm doing deep healing work and introspection work with my Mm -hmm. past relationships and I'm also speaking with my partner before during after like we're in this together how can we help each other yeah exactly exactly right um, cause a lot of times when people are having these sort of attachment meltdowns, it gets just mislabeled as like, you're being jealous and go deal with like, that's your shit. Deal with it. Right. <laughs> I sorry, I'm laughing at the toxic polyamory uh, to speak. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. That's Gosh. one of the shadows, this hyper independence when it's like polyamory is really about interdependence, not hyper independence. Mm. yeah so maybe a few minutes ago we were like what's the word for that maybe that's it right this hyper independence you know where it's my freedom my rules or the highway would Um, you be able to just for the people who are listening just differentiate um interdependent and codependent or the difference between that versus codependence yeah yeah so um codependence is going to be like i'm up like, oh, there's so many ways to say it. And I just wrote a whole chapter on it for my next book. Right? So I'm like, what, what, which points do I pull from here? Um, but basically it's, I'm not okay without you. Right. It, it becomes this, it's not just a belief, but this, it can almost be like an addiction to our partner or a, a belief that like, I need this person to be okay. I can't be myself. It can be identity fusion with the relationship mm-hmm. itself, mm-hmm. you know, and it can show up in these micro ways where like, Oh, if you're upset, I have to be upset. Or if you're upset, I have to caretake you're upset, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or sometimes it's the seesaw. If you're up, I'm down, you know, we can't both be in the same place or we have to be in the same place. It's, you know, it can be expressed in many ways, but where there's a dynamic too of like a, you know, it's a romantic partnership, but there's, it's more like a parent child relationship or someone's over-functioning and the other person gets to under-function. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. And there's the loss of self, right? That's the key component, you know, is there's a real loss of self in that dynamic, the, you know, hyper independence is there's only self, 
mm-hmm. at the expense of others, right? And in the middle, this interdependence is there's me and you, right? <laughs> and <laughs> like, I'm okay when I'm not with you. And I love it when I am with you, right? And we can be apart and still feel our healthy autonomy. And I can make decisions for myself. I consider you, but I can still make decisions for myself. You know, so Mm -hmm. there's, it really is the balance of together and separateness. That's beautiful. And I I like, you've talked about how it's not the black or white. There is this, there's this this zone where I love being by myself. I love being with you. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to yeah. say there's also there's times when you know in relationships the other person is not there yeah partially they could be working they could be in a date they could just be having something happening in their life and you have this I'll quote this from your workbook that uh, the section we say you are the source of mm. your happiness love courage emotional regulation and purpose and this idea is is so powerful and it's so um, counter to what many people believe, this idea of finding a happiness or a sense of fulfillment outside of ourselves. Yeah. So how do people react when you share this, when you share this, uh, when you share this idea? Yeah. Most of the reactions is like, oh yeah. I mean, usually people agree. And, th- and then it's just, they're like, well, how do I switch this around? You know, um, how do I make it so I can actually experience happiness from within, not just it's my partner that makes me happiness and it comes from outside. Right. Mm. And I do say too, it's like our partners and our loved ones or experiences we have, those can all support, you know, they can give us meaning. They can make us happy, but they can't be the source of it. Mm. That's the difference. Of course, people can inspire us, you know, and give us meaning, right? Like my being a parent gives me so much purpose and meaning in my life, but I can't make my son the source of my purpose and meaning. That's unfair to him. Mm. Right. Same thing. It's unfair to make my partner the source of my happiness um, or even my sexuality. Right. That's a powerful point because it's really easy to associate sexuality, you know, linking it with other people. Exactly. But we actually have a sexuality ourselves. Right. That we can enjoy ourselves. Right. And people might open our eyes to new aspects of ourselves that we didn't see until we were in relationship with them, but not to confuse that for it is there for them. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. So what's the first step that someone might take to sort of really begin on that path? If you imagine someone who's, they've got the job, they got the partner, they had their kids there (laughs) (laughs) and they're, and you, you kind of have a session with them and you're kind of like, okay, it's time to go in. Like it's time to, it's time to find you be your own, you know, your own sacred fire, your own source. What's like a first little step someone might be able to take? Great. So we'll define what aspect are we talking about, right? Like, is it purpose? Is it happiness? Let's go for purpose. I think that purpose is a beautiful, a beautiful one for this one. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So first what I do is have them like close their eyes and we'll look at all the ways purpose is outside of us in other humans or other situations, right? And you start to go, oh, wow, it's really out there usually. (laughs) Like there's all these tendrils, you know, like and channels towards other people, other situations and really like bringing it all back in, right? And into your own body, into the center of your body or your chest and just that it's a super simple visualization, but it starts to center purpose in themselves. Right. Mm. And then just, we let's sit and feel it. 
you know, like feel purpose in you right in this moment, right? And breathe with it, let it light you up, let it fill you up. Mm. And right. And usually people are like, this feels great. And you go, yeah, <laughs> that's you. You just did it. <laughs> right. So that's one way, you know, or we can start to think about past memories, even if they're little, like when you just felt a sense of purpose, because it's something you did. Okay, that was you, right? So remembering actually times that you were the source, mm-hmm. you know, and do then you were, go, ahead, go on. No, no, go ahead. Well, I'm going to ask you, like, do you remember a moment when you kind of had that realization? Was there a turning point in your life where you sort of realized like, oh, I'm the source here? Yes, this is a great question. I'm going to have to think back. Um, I think there is probably a time times where I realized, well, it's hard because I was so, I had to become self-reliant so early, mm-hmm. right? That like part of my trauma was that, oh, I can't source out. <laughs> I can't source externally, you know, <laughs> right? Um, and yet, of course, I still did. Right. So I think starting, there was a turning point of like, oh, I'm feeling how much I'm dependent on this idea of this other person to feel a certain way and looking at how I needed to create that for myself. Yeah. So yeah. it's so through... probably in some breakups is my guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get that moment of pain of separation and realizing I need to go in here. I need to. Yeah. Right. I need to, you know bring more source and life into myself and not get so caught up into some of these things yeah yeah that's there's something there's a there's a beauty in imagining each person being their own sources and that I've heard that image of lights lights that when together they shine brighter yeah it doesn't take away from other people's light to be shining brightly exactly right if you think of candles in a room like right yeah exactly a last question I have and this is a uh, a playful one in some ways mm-hmm. you open up the door to many things and one of those is how that we how we share uh, our sense of commitment with someone mm-hmm. it doesn't need to be marriage or a ring there's other right. ways so I'm wondering what are some fun or interesting ideas that you've seen over the years in terms of ways of saying I care like I'm committed to you yeah some of it's just literally that right? <laughs> right I mean some of it's people saying like yes we're committed to each other and then defining what is what are the parameters of that commitment what does it mean mm. you know and sometimes it's coming up with a familiar phrase like label for the relationship and sometimes it's coming up with their own creative phrase label for what the relationship is or what people call each other that feels empowering to that connection you know, um, I see many people exchange jewelry, but it's not necessarily the traditional rings, you know, it's a bracelet, it's a pin, it's something, you know, I know people, they get matching tattoos, right? Um, people do different ceremonies, you know, that are personal, or they just say their vows or agreements to each other, or they have a party and they have, even though it's not like a religious or legal marriage, it's a commitment ceremony. Yeah. That sense of design, I, it keeps yeah. going every step. It's the relationship, it's the commitment, it's the routine, the the rituals. Yeah, um, yeah. Thank you for sharing those. I'm wondering what's next for Jessica Fern. You mm-hmm. you you sensed into a need. You wrote a book. It blew up. Mm-hmm. Everyone 
you know, it's like everyone, everyone in the world read it. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> right? What's but a next lot of people you? have, yeah. Yeah, lots um, of people have. Yeah, the next book um, is Polywise. It's coming out later this year. And so that was actually the original body of work was me going with my clients and with interviews, trying to sort through, why is this so hard? This polyamorous thing, <laughs> right? Or when it's hard, why is it hard? That's probably a better way to say it, right? Um, and the attachment was one bullet of several bullets of my answers to that question. So this next book is looking at the rest of the things. Oh my goodness. Uh, right. What that do you yeah. want a trailer? I, I... A little trailer, like how do you make a paradigm shift? How do we troubleshoot when one partner doesn't want to do non-monogamy? That would be more specific to people opening up. The book is not just for the newly opened up, it's for people all along their journey. Um codependency is a big one, um, mm. which we covered just a little bit, you know, codependency and the opening up process and you know, down the road as people are in long-term polyamorous relationships. Mm. Um, the cracks in the foundation. So usually when there's a transition, like a new partner or an escalation or a de-escalation in one relationship, it can expose cracks in the other ones. <laughs> right. Um there's also a chapter on the awakening of the self that for many people, the transition into the paradigm of non-monogamy awakens a lot of other things for them. Um, and sometimes that's liberating and incredible. And they get into the self-authoring phase, designing of who they are and what they are in every area. And sometimes it's a really painful deconstruction, you know, um, of themselves right? Like certain people that have never explored their privilege and they start to try non-monogamy and they get on certain forums and they're, they, their privilege gets handed to them pretty quickly, you know? Pretty and quickly. And it's, yeah. And it's, it can be a very difficult, it's a necessary, but very difficult wake up call, you know? Mm. Yeah. You are just so aligned in your path and mm. hearing your excitement fills me yeah. with just joy and excitement. Thank you so much for speaking today with me. Do you have anything, last thoughts, anything you'd like to add before we close? For no, the just this was, this was such a great conversation. So thank you. Okay. Well, yeah. keep being a shining star, Jessica Fern. <laughs> I wish you all the best. I look forward to, see, to, to reading Polly Wise. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.